from Small Data Industries, this is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Ben Fino Radin, and on this show, we talk to artists, collectors, curators, conservators, and more, people who are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. Welcome back to all of our subscribers. And if you're new here, hello, it's great to have you here. And boy, did you tune in at a great time because today I have a real treat in store for you. Today is my first sit down on the show with an art collector. And in some ways it would be selling her short to refer to Pam Kramlick and her husband, Dick Kramlick, merely as collectors. More than 30 years ago, they dedicated themselves fully to not only building a world-class collection of time-based media art, but in doing so, also dedicating themselves fully to funding initiatives like the New Art Trust and Matters in Media Art, and really just giving emerging professionals in this field as it was developing space to collaboratively develop best practices for acquisition, display, and long-term care of time-based media art. For Pam, it all really began in 1992 on a visit to Documenta where she encountered a piece unlike any she had ever seen before. By the time Dick and I got married and uh, we, we joined the museum and started going on these art trips, the most exciting art that I saw, the, the art that moved me, uh, was uh, the art that moved and talked. And I think the first really impressive work was Tall Ships of Gary Hill. I was very impressed by that. You walked into a room, it was an experience. You went down a long, dark hallway and all these images started coming out from the walls, these black and white images. And they'd be different age people and different types of people, and yet they all were welcoming. They begged you to interact with them as much as you could. And then at the end, there was a small child who had her arms outstretched. And there was a kind of moving experience in there. And I thought, wow, this is something different. Mm. Of course, Dick was working in technology anyway, down in Silicon Valley, looking for companies that changed your way of thinking about things and doing things. And so I thought that this work, which was changing my way of thinking and about artwork and about uh, what I saw around me. Um, it just seemed very prescient and something that I became very interested in. So it sounds like that was kind of the light bulb moment? Well, it was, and I think it was uh, even enhanced by John Caldwell, who was uh, leading our Collectors Forum group at the time, uh, and Jack Lane coming on board as the director. Uh, both of them had started the Carnegie International, and then they came to our museum, and they were looking to the future. John knew that I was kind of interested in doing something different, and we had so many wonderful collectors in our group who were doing the painting and sculpture area that if I could make a contribution, it might be in another area. And so I thought that why didn't I take on the technical area since... You know, it sort of did fit with Dick and what he was doing. And um, and also, I was just enchanted by the reactions I was having <laughs> to this artwork. So we decided that I'd pick up on that, and he introduced us to the work of Dara Birnbaum, and we bought Break and Transmission Tiananmen Square. Mm. And that was, it still is one of my favorite pieces in the collection, and I think one of the most important pieces because of how it is even relating to world events 10 years later. 
So that first Dara Burnbound piece that you collected, what was it like trying to install and live with such a large and technologically involved piece in a home, you know, that really wasn't built for it? Well, the interesting thing is our home is really very traditional. In fact, it was built in the 20s by one of the engineers on the Golden Gate Bridge and is kind of like a an Italian tutor. Hmm. <laughs> it's sort of uh, it's not one or the other but a little bit of both. And to put this kind of artwork in this house is really not <laughs> something that anybody would think would work. So when Dara came to um, talk to us about the installation, we looked around and I said, Dara, you can put it anywhere you want. And uh, she chose the stairwell. So we have all these little monitors on pipes coming out of the wall and the ceiling that hold these little monitors and the speakers. This experience and the challenges of installing a complex time-based media installation in a historic home must have left a lasting impression on Pam as, in some ways, it ultimately led to what would become an all-consuming project lasting two decades to conceive of and build a new home, one purpose-built to serve as the optimal environment for exhibiting and caring for time-based media art. Now, just an editor's note here, before I hand it back off to Pam, in a moment she's going to mention her friend Jacques. She's referring to Jacques Herzog, as in Herzog and de Morin, you know, like the world-class architects. The project came together because of what Jacques said to me one day. He said, if you ever want to build a house where you can live with your art collection, we would like to do it for you. And so what did that mean to me? Uh, it meant a journey because I'd never built anything and neither had they for, for a collection like ours. And so I, <laughs> I was asked to put down on paper what I, what I thought I needed. And so they came back to me a few months later with two little boxes. And one box had in it what I had asked for, which was sort of a sort of squarish pavilion with little cubicles in it that would be sort of like screening rooms. Mm -hmm. And then Jacques pulled the lid off of the other one, and in it was a double helix of what looked like film. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I mean, this is totally different, but it looked really exciting to me because the medium is about film in a way. So it seemed logical. So we went off in that direction and we were on um, a difficult journey because they were trying to fit then that idea on a piece of property that was too small. Mm. This started in 97 and we worked through a number of designs. Then in, in 99, we bought another piece of property and that's where the existing house is. The property allowed us to dig a huge basement. So when you come up the hill to that property, you come into an underground space, which is like a cut in the side of the hill. And on that level, you have an exhibition space that's probably about 10,000 square feet, plus other gallery spaces around it, including a screening room. And then you have a staircase that goes up to a mezzanine, which was going to be back at the house. It's now our master bedroom and, and another area that is a conference room and also a gallery. And then the top floor is the glass house, which is where they created this curved wall structure that was uh, indicated by their first design. And that was very difficult to build. As we got into it, we realized that the technology wasn't really up to what they had envisioned. So we were 
challenged with how could we fit this idea into something that we could actually build. So I think that's why this project took so much time, is that we were also way ahead of what was actually physically possible. So I think that's one of the reasons why we've simplified it to something that actually we love living in. It has so much light in it. It's wonderful in the rain because the over, overhanging uh, 6,000 square foot roof of stainless steel gives you this curtain of water all the way around the glass box. So now hopefully you have a sense of the lay of the land and the architecture. And with that as a foundation, Pam is going to take you and I on a little virtual walking tour of the collection. If you come in the bottom floor, on the left, you see Marina Abramovic's cleaning the mirror in a little cutout in the side of the wall. And that's outside the glass doors. You walk through glass doors and you come into a hallway, which has work by Vito Acconci, and those are wall works. And then you come into a recessed area that has Dara Birnbaum's attack. On the left side at the bottom of the circular staircase is Matthew Barney's sculpture of Drawing Restraint 9. And if you turn right to the screening room, you have an orange room with chairs from a theater in Turin by Carlo Molino. And then you go into another space that has Bruce Nauman's OK, OK. So then if you go back toward the sculpture, uh, there's a big door that goes into the actual exhibition space, and that has about 12 works wow. in it. So you, you start with uh, Pierre Huyghe's Human Mask. On the other side is Mircea Cantor's Sick Glory Mundi. There's a work by Terrence Simon, work by Joseph Boyce, another by the Wilson Twins, Shirin Nishat, Richard Moss, William Kentridge, Steve McQueen, James Coleman, and then a big installation of Richard Moss's. And, uh, and then there's also one wonderful work of Matthew Barney from the very beginning of his career, which is a unique work, Scab Action, but that's also in that, that section. And then in the Terrace Gallery, we have a work by Valley Export. And um, so that's pretty much the lower floor. There's some monitors in the hallway on the way back toward the front door that have Martha Rossler and uh, Joan Jonas. So that's that floor. If you go upstairs on the floor where we live, actually, our personal area, uh, we have work by Christian Markley. We have a painting and um, also a work from the series he did with gum on the streets and, you know, uh, different straws. <laughs> I don't know exactly. You know, it's hard to describe that one. And then um, also on that floor was the exhibition of the drawings of the architects, the architectural drawings and the, and the models. And then there's also work on that floor by Tony Conrad, Yellow Mirror. And then there are two photographs by Warhol and a number of Billy Names photographs of the studio. And there's a Joseph Boyce on that floor. And then you go up to the pavilion and there we have Gary Hill and Namjoon Paik and Matthew Barney. Wow. Right now we've loved this particular group of works together and we are planning to do a book, a catalog of this particular exhibition with, uh, we've been um, collecting essays from different people that we've asked to write them. And uh, hopefully we'll have a good record of it. And then we'll go on and uh, we also have actually three other exhibitions planned already to follow it. So I'm thrilled that 
After 20 years, we have something that makes sense and that we're using in a very exciting way and that people are appreciating what they're seeing. And, you know, this is just the first show we've done from the collection. I hope I, I get to see a lot more of it before I leave the planet. <laughs> Now, I know all of this sounds pretty ambitious, but during the time the Kramlicks were planning and building the collection and the facility to display and live with it, that is definitely not all that they were up to. I thought we should do something about preservation. And so that was when we formed New Art Trust. That was with Tate, MoMA, and SF MoMA. We were involved with the Tate anyway, and also loved MoMA and had gotten to know some of the people there. So we asked the directors of both institutions and, and also, of course, our own director, Jack Lane, if they would be interested in coming on board and creating New Art Trust with me. And, uh, and they did. They said, why not? And just for those who aren't familiar, what is the New Art Trust? What, what were its initial goals? We wanted to standardize practices, best practices for the field. And so we created Matters mm -hmm. in Media, which was a website that I guess was the go-to place in the beginning. Well, by and large, it really still is. I, I still refer folks getting started to the Matters in Media art website. You know, even though there are some parts of it that could use updating, it's, it's still pretty intensely comprehensive. Well, that's good. I'm so glad because that was really what we intended to do. And I, I hope now that we can even enliven that platform with all the different things that are happening now that are going to really change the way we used to do things and probably for years to come with all the technological advances that allow us to share this collection and this kind of work in a different mm -hmm. way and buy and sell it differently. I mean, we were talking about that this morning. It's just amazing with this NFT craze that's going on right now. Um, what is that going to mean for all of us in the art world? There is the, the sort of standard way of selling it on the, from the galleries where you have the original and then you have these editions. And actually the buying and selling of artwork has also been questioned because the artist doesn't participate in the auction market after his work is sold two mm -hmm. and three times. And so a lot of these things I think are coming up now with maybe possible solutions. We, you know, we're all wondering how that $69 million token mm -hmm. work, this Beeple thing, who's going to buy it next? And will it be sold or not sold? And if so, will it be the same price or won't be the same price? I mean, how does all that work? Mm. It'll be interesting to see if it does have merit in the world of the future. So it sounds like you're pretty optimistic about their potential. I think it would be wonderful, actually, because they need the resources to continue mm. creating. And I've always wondered, without those of us who are buying these editions, how they would manage to do that. Because to film things is so much more expensive, actually, than uh, a canvas and brushes and paints. So I've, I'm hoping that um, that there is some way that they can continue to uh, you know, have the rewards. I think it's going to be really exciting to watch what comes out of this. I think everybody is frantically trying to come up with possibilities and solutions and all that sort of thing and, uh, and find out where the ownership rights are and, and the security uh, aspects of it and also the information around each one of the pieces, which, of course, I've cared about. I think that's the preservation mm -hmm. conservation side. We need to know whether it is the original and where is the title to that artwork and who has the royalties and mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. Uh, always the artists have had the royalties. Well, you know, is that going to be secure at this point? 
So I don't know. I mean, I just think there's a lot of work to be done going forward. I'm curious, Pam. I mean, when you first saw that Gary Hill piece and you really decided to hone in on time-based media, did you have any idea what you were getting yourself into in terms of all of these complexities with collecting and preservation? No, I really didn't think about it in the beginning. I just sort of always thought that film would be there and it was really interesting work. And it was four or five years into collecting it that we started to realize that we were going to have to be serious about the material that it was made on and that that wasn't going to be the same for very long, that it was going to keep changing. So that's what keeps us busy is we have to get, it's not a, it's not a painting on the wall that you can leave there for 20 years and, you know, just make sure that the lighting is right and the, that it's cleaned once in a while and that somebody doesn't bump into it. Uh, you know, these things actually are changing all the time. I'm curious, how how have you and Dick approached collecting? Do you tend to hone in on any particular themes, you know, or are you just purely intuitive? Very often I've been inspired by the people who want me to see something hmm. special. I, I really credit John Caldwell a lot for getting us into this field. He was also the person that introduced us to Thea Westreich, who we worked with for 10 years as our art consultant, and that was a wonderful learning experience. There were no books in those days to go to to learn about this field. Right. I mean, we had to go and actually see the material. And so it required a lot of traveling, which I did. I remember going to one of Bill Viola's shows at the Reina Sofia in Madrid, and that was a really wonderful experience as well. And so the travel that came along with the investigation was as, <laughs> as informational and educational as, as all the rest of it. So it really enhanced our lives. And, and so I think that's how I'm inspired to go and see things. It's been through gallery exhibitions, museum exhibitions, artist studio visits, somebody talking about some work that they saw that they were extremely influenced by, uh, moved by. And so that's kind of the trail I've been following. But I, I have to say that the that Thea was a wonderful guide, and she introduced me to a lot of work that was it has become extremely important in the collection. It was then; it's even more so now. And um, I just uh, I really looked for things that I couldn't forget. Mm. <laughs> You know, that, that really made such an impression on me because they were saying something about what was going on in my life or in the world and really just talked about humanity in a way that was uh, important to me. So those the, that was what guided the collection. And looking back on it now, um, what I feel like I need to do when I look at look for artwork is I want work to be relative to the world I'm living in so that you know, a hundred years from now, people will look back and try to understand the issues that we're dealing with today. I mean, we have all these political issues, we have uh, philosophical issues, we have uh, global warming issues. <laughs> you know, should we uh, use the fuels we're using? I mean, we have all of these issues and I think it plays into to a lot of the artwork that we're seeing. I mean, I know recently we bought a work of David Clairboux, which is Meditation on Fire. And uh, it's because we've had the fires so close to us mm -hmm. in the Napa Valley, and so close to the, to the building mm -hmm. that we were talking about. You know, we're worried about climate change. There's no question about it. And so uh, there's a lot of wonderful work being done that's commenting on that. 
So I think those are the things that I'm looking to is, and, and even like Tiananmen Square, I mean, we've just had that again in Hong Kong, the issues of freedom of everything. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think these pieces invite conversation and investigation. I mean, if you think about it, Guernica did the same thing and Goya did the same thing. And I think that, that the artists who leave us meaningful work have always commented in the world around them. Mm. I love that idea of really embracing the, the the time and the place that you are active in building the collection. So Pam, you are a pro at this point, and much like Dick was in Silicon Valley long before it was Silicon Valley, you've been collecting long before the art market was what it's become today. Uh, I'm curious, from your perspective, in what ways have you seen the art world change most significantly over the years? Gosh, well, I think what really changed it a lot Mm. were the art fairs. I think those have happened within my lifetime. And uh, and I mean, that, that I think opened the world up to a lot more um, excitement around art because it became a, mm-hmm. an event, you know, something that they could look forward to and which a lot of people could go to and interact with their friends and get excited about sharing what they were interested in. I don't know. It just sort of enlivened the art in a way. Yeah. I do. I mean, it's, I go more because I love yeah. to see everybody and that's important to me. And, and, but for, for my kind of work, for the kind of work we've collected, I usually have seen it before I get there. Um, and that's, as I said before, uh, with much appreciation to the people who have followed our, our collection and, and introduce us to what they mm-hmm. think we should see. So I'm, I'm always very thankful for that. Uh, those relationships. And as we wrap up here, I'm curious, is there any parting advice that you'd like to leave for any aspiring art collectors that might be listening? Focus. (laughs) Find something that you really love and focus on it. And it's really fun. And like I said, it was really a thrill to be the only one doing it for a while, for a very short while. But for that moment, I mean, it gave me a lot of confidence. Pam Kramlik, thank you so, so much for joining me today for this conversation. It was a real treat. And thank you for all of the support that you and Dick have given to the field of time-based media conservation over the years. Well, thank you. And I've enjoyed knowing you over the years, too. And I really am so proud of what you're oh, doing shucks. for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, well, thank you, Ben. And as always, thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this conversation. If you enjoyed hearing about the Kramlik Collection and you're a real art and architecture nerd like me and you want to see deeper inside the collection and the incredible facility that Pam and Dick built for it, you're in luck because they recently published a book titled The Kramlik Residence and Collection, which is absolutely bursting with pictures of this truly one-of-a-kind home for time-based media art. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the show. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, really wherever you get your podcasts. We're putting out new episodes every week. You can also find the show on Instagram and Twitter at Art Obsolescence. Do share the show with a friend or a colleague. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All of that helps immensely. Art and Obsolescence is a sponsored project of the New York Foundation for the Arts. If you'd like to support the show, you can find a link to make a tax-deductible donation at artandobsolescence.com. Um, Thanks for listening. My name is Ben Fina Radin, and this has been Art and Obsolescence.